You're listening to The Source in more ways than one. Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Peg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Peg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the show. Have you ever heard the claim that we only use 10% of our brains? If you're like me and you've ever walked in a room and forgotten what you walked in there for, you might think this claim is true. But in fact, this 10% rule is a myth. Neuroscience expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson is my guest today, and he'll debunk this myth and explain what we're doing with the other 90% of our brains. He'll also help us to improve cognitive functions like memory and attention. And if you're a parent or a teacher, you'll want to hear his recommendations for how we can enhance and maximize learning and achievement. You can join the conversation with us today by calling 303-477-5600. If you have a question for Dr. Kenneth Wesson about your brain or the brain of your child, call in today at 303-477-5600. Well, Living Well with Dr. Pegg is brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian. And if your school is in need of advanced safety education training or life-saving products, technology, and solutions, go to ssiguardian.com. And also find out how you can attend the upcoming Advanced Active Shooter Response Training at NC State University. And if you're away from your radio, you can stream Living Well with Dr. Pegg online at drpegradio.com. Or if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives or to connect with our sponsor to purchase a copy of one of my books or to register for one of my upcoming workshops and events. And I want to tell you about two events that I have coming up. Uh, if you're feeling stuck and ready for change, you'll want to register for my Do Something Different for Change personal transformation retreat in Denver. It's the day before New Year's Eve, or December 30th, 2017. And it'll be a great time of transformation and uh, kicking off the new year with a new mindset and some new strategies for change. So take advantage of early bird pricing now through the end of October. Space is limited, so go to drpegradio.com retreat to register today. And if you love to walk, run, or eat pie, join me for the pumpkin pie 5K and 10K race in Denver on Saturday, November 18th. It's a family-friendly race for runners and walkers, and there's also a free quarter-mile kids fun run so you can bring out the whole family. All finishers get a huge piece of delicious pumpkin pie, as well as a race logo shirt, a finisher's medal, and finish line expo with vendors, food, and fun. And the cost to register for the 5K before November 1st is only $25. And when you register, be sure to join my team, Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Just click on the Join a Team button and look for Living Well with Dr. Pegg in the drop-down menu. And you can go to drpegradio.com slash pumpkin and click on the big pumpkin pie logo. I'm giving away some cool prizes to the first 10 people to register and join my Living Well with Dr. Pegg team. Again, go to drpegradio.com slash pumpkin. 
Now, did you know that exercise, like walking or running in a 5K, is also good for your brain? My guest today, Dr. Kenneth Wesson, is an expert on the human brain. Dr. Kenneth Wesson is an internationally renowned educational consultant in the field of neuroscience, and he's the author of the book, Brain Considerate Strategies for Home and School. Dr. Kenneth Wesson, thanks so much for being with us by phone today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you. So, Dr. Wesson, uh, we know exercise is good for our brains, but um, is pumpkin pie good for our brains? Can you help me get some <laughs> folks to join my team? <laughs> well, uh, nutrition is good for the brain. Okay. Uh, almost any nutrition that involves vegetables or materials that were grown organically is good for the brain. Uh, what we know is that processed foods are not good for the brain, and this is one of the issues that contributes to obesity. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that where students are typically obese, those classrooms have low scores when it comes to learning. Uh -oh. <laughs> so, there's, so there's an association that, that we sometimes neglect. Yeah. And when we talk about test scores, sometimes those test scores also re reflect mm. fitness and health scores. Wow, that's a great insight, and we're going to dig even deeper into learning some new things about the brain. So unless this is an organic, homemade pumpkin pie slice that they're giving out at the finish line, uh, it may not necessarily be great for the brain, but certainly exercise is. Exercise is good. Okay. Pumpkin is good in the form of the pie with sugar and crust, <laughs> Not so good. Okay, so we got to take the good with the bad. Well, uh, Dr. Wesson, thanks again for being on the program. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Um, we've all heard that claim that we only use 10% of our brains. Uh, where did that come from? And, and is it true? Can, do we really get by with just 10% of our brain? Well, we can begin with the answer. No, it's not okay. true. Most importantly. But uh, early neuroanatomists were able to identify what approximately 10% of the brain did. And so a journalist picked up the summary and said, oh, we must use 10% of the brain because that's all that's been discovered as mm -hmm. being utilized. And after writing the article, the article was very popular and became, became common knowledge in the, in the, at the street level that we use 10% of our brain. However, with neuroimaging, you can see the entire brain is lit up during cognitive activities. Even when you're asleep, your brain is extremely active. But there are quite a few neural myths. The 10% myth is one of them, uh, that we get no new brain cells after birth is another myth, uh, that we are left-brained or right-brained just as we are left-handed and right-handed. That's also a myth. Mm. <clears throat> but um, the other issue with the 10%, we do have... 100 billion neurons and almost 10 times as many glial cells. And so it's typically a ratio of 10 to 1 inside the brain, and that may be another origin for the 10% myth because it was always assumed that the neurons did the heavy lifting inside the brain and that the glial cells were exclusively support cells for the neurons. But recent research is showing that even glials wheels participate in some aspects of cognition and learning. So um, once again, there's there's no real basis to that, although it's very popular. Mm -hmm. I think there was a movie out recently where Morgan Freeman makes the statement that we use 10% of the brain and the dialogue continues. 
with the assumption that that's true. Yes, so we could categorize those neuromyths as as fake news. (laughs) Uh, Fake news, definitely. (laughs) Okay, great. Uh, Well, we know all the kids are back in school now, uh, and you say uh, if it's a teacher's job to develop the mind, shouldn't teachers know how the brain works? And similarly, uh, for parents, wouldn't an understanding of brain development provide useful insight into successful child rearing? So, yeah, really for any of us, having an understanding of how the human brain works, whether we're teachers or parents or just, you know, I think there was a book years ago called An Owner's Manual for the Brain. Just because we all have one, isn't it beneficial that we all better understand how the brain functions? Oh, absolutely. If you think about what happens when each of us has a, becomes a parent for the first time, we bring home a baby, but we don't bring home a baby with a user's manual. (laughs) And if you look at the charts in the pediatrician's office, those charts that reflect when a child should begin walking, when they should begin talking, when they should begin grasping, when they should begin running, skipping, all of those aspects of behavior are governed by the development of the brain. That certain capacities are are part of behavior only because the brain allows it to do so based on maturation. So we so, parents who are worried about their child not meeting those milestones, sometimes if they better understood the brain and kind of the range of development of certain milestones, they might put their minds at ease, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, first, those milestones are typically averages, which means some will fall above, some will fall, above, fall below, some quite a bit below, and some distinctively above. So they're averages, and some kids are on an accelerated pace for movement, and they may walk early, but they may be more delayed when it comes to language. Very few kids are on the up side of those scales in every behavioral aspect. We're all a little different. And what we find especially fascinating is if you think of a family where you know there are five children, think how different those five children are. Mm -hmm. And then when we craft our classrooms, we take 35 kids and we assume that all of them will be identical. When when you have controls for genetics and environment, they're not identical. Why should the 35 random kids be identical? So yes, it's important for educators to know that all brains are different and differentiated instruction, understanding individual differences and how to meet those in the classroom, critically important. But every parent does the same thing recognizing that all of our kids are different, they're disciplined differently, sometimes they're spoken to differently. Some things that motivate a young boy won't motivate a young girl. We always accommodate those differences. It's good to have that reminder, though. Uh, you know, you're, you're stating something that makes such good common sense, and yet we forget. And we, we say, well, this worked with this kid. How come this strategy isn't working with this one? And some of those differences are just innate and born differences, and it, you're suggesting that some of those differences kind of get shaped based on the environment and the interactions that each, that each child is having. Uh, and so for it to be so different, even in one family, how much more so when that's multiplied in a classroom setting? Yes, and when you have kids from diverse backgrounds, once again, you expect greater differences. But even monozygotic, identical mm-hmm. twins... Their behaviors are different. Their experiences are different. 
scans of their brains indicate that they are indeed different. And if identical twins are different, then we should expect everyone else to be a little different. And then that's why the premise of my work is based on the question, if it's your job to develop the mind, shouldn't you know how the brain works? And that's not just a question, a rhetorical question posed for parents, for educators, it's for parents and anyone who has any interaction with children. Because everything that they do, all the ways in which they respond, and everything we do with them, for them, or to them, results in a reaction based inside the brain. Wow. And even even someone who drives and owns a car, it's helpful to understand how your engine works, how that car works. Sure, you can you can drive it and get from point A to point B without really understanding what's going on under the hood, but it really does make a difference to to figure out what that strange sound is or how to improve our gas mileage or get a smoother ride to really understand what understand what's happening under the hood. Same for our kids. Yes, you say, how can I utilize my car best? What are the kinds of things that help me get better gas mileage? What are the ways in which I can use this car safely? How can I protect this car so I can use it 10, 15 years from now in the same manner that I use it today without any problems? Mm-hmm. Well, you've coined a term, uh, brain-considerate strategies, and you say we need to establish smart schools where smart or smart homes and SMART is an acronym. Can you talk more about that, brain-considerate and SMART schools and, and homes? Yeah. Well, the brain-considerate strategy simply means understanding how the brain works and thereafter utilizing that information as we begin crafting plans for education or even plans for just child-rearing, but keeping the brain in mind as those strategies are now being deployed. For the SMART schools, I've modified that same letters, but I've reorganize them, and it's now what I call stream learning. It takes the same elements, but it's science, technology, reading, engineering, art, and mathematics. It's what we now call STEM education with the addition of the R for reading language arts because every scientist or engineer spends probably 50 to 80% of their time, according to the National Research Council, on issues associated with language arts as they produce knowledge within their fields. They read, they write, they do research, they deliver papers. We use all of the language arts skills in the context of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The A is for art, and because you can't teach engineering without teaching three-dimensional modeling, you do have to understand art. But art is important for just developing mental imagery when you're doing something as simple as reading because the words typically represent objects or they represent actions. And if you can't imagine what those words actually represent, then reading is of no purpose. So the stream model is basically how we learn, how we function. And it's a model whereby schools can take a project and now incorporate all the different disciplines in the context of the project where kids can now say, oh, here's how I use this concept from English. Here's how I mathematically analyze this problem. In the classroom, quite often kids will raise their hand and ask, oh, is this going to be on the test? Because they're basically asking, I don't see the importance of it, but you seem to be excited about it. But I don't think it's that important. When students see how those concepts or skills are used in the real world, 
they they say, aha, that has currency. I need to remember that. I'm going to see it used multiple times to say, aha, that's something that's good for me to know. So when you hear a kid who says, I hate math or I hate language arts, it, it probably is more an issue of uh, at the in the classroom experience that those things are not being integrated into practical applications or things that that student can get excited about. And that's something also parents can learn a lesson from that as well. Yeah, oftentimes kids say, I hate math only because they don't understand math in the manner that's being taught. I worked on developing a program called Addison Wesley Math back in the 1980s, the mid-80s. I'm kind of dating myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this was in the mid-1980s. It turned out to be the most widely used math program in the country. And it was a program that began with manipulatives, where kids would manipulate a mathematical concept and then move to pencil and paper. But they wouldn't ever start with pencil and paper. They would have three objects, and they'd add two more of the same object, and then they would see that three plus two is five. They'd manipulate it and say, aha, four plus one is also five. When they began to understand the concepts and the pictures in the mind's eye, suddenly they're developing visual imagery and it's that visual-spatial thinking that they can apply to almost any concept if they're able to manipulate the ideas in the mind's eye. Mm-hmm. And it's also one of those concepts that uh, we find, especially with Alzheimer's, one of the first things that we see with Alzheimer's patients is they lose that ability for working memory. And suddenly, they can't picture in the mind's eye and they struggle with even who I'm related to right. because I can't keep that relationship. Well, you hear the music, Dr. Wesson. Uh, we're talking with uh, neuroscience expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson, and we're going to take a break. Uh, but first, how does firsthand experience and emotional experience and time management improve learning? Dr. Wesson gives us the answers when we return. Stay with us. We'll be back. Are you prepared for a sudden cardiac arrest? Having an AED is simply not enough. School athletic coaches are required to have CPR and AED training, but they can only save a life with properly functioning and maintained equipment. Maintain compliance and reduce your liability with AED program management from SSI Guardian. Buy an AED and receive a two-year management program for free. Call us today at 877-878-5800 or visit us at SSIGuardian.com. You can learn a lot about yourself and God from a dog. When her children asked for a dog, this mom got them gerbils. So imagine their surprise, and hers, when she adopted an abandoned dog that she met in Dallas, Texas, just one day after her divorce. In a way that only God could orchestrate, her spur-of-the-moment decision to take in a little dog she named Dallas was just the beginning of a seven-year journey that transformed her life and taught her to see herself and God in a whole new light. Read Doggy Tales, Lessons on Life, Love, and Loss I Learned from My Dog, a delightful and heartwarming book by psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. Part memoir, part Christian inspiration, Doggy Tales is a must-read for anyone who wants to learn to recognize God's voice, even in the most unlikely places. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll love Doggy Tales. Go to drpegradio.com books to purchase your copy today. 
Threats at our schools and workplace continue at an alarming rate and require an innovative approach to overall institutional safety. A 21st century safe school needs the right training, the right equipment, and the correct action plan to achieve a future-ready, safe learning environment. SSI Guardian's comprehensive, evidence-based solutions and Tier 1 Security Consulting is the only active shooter training in America with an accredited CEU. Don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com. My guest is Dr. Kenneth Wesson, educational consultant in the field of neuroscience. Thanks so much again, Dr. Wesson, for being with us today. Thank you. And how can listeners get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your work or bring you out to their school? Uh, probably the easiest is to go to my website, <clears throat> which is sciencemaster.com. And it, on my website is all of my contact information. Excellent. And I'll also have a link to Dr. Wesson's information on my website. Go to drpegradio.com. And if you want to share this interview with a friend or family member, Again, you can find Dr. Kenneth Wesson at sciencemaster.com or go to drpegradio.com for a link back to him. Listeners, you can also join the conversation today by calling 303-477-5600. If you have a question for Dr. Kenneth Wesson about your brain, about learning, we're also going to be talking about memory. Call in today at 303-477-5600. So, Dr. Wesson, we were talking about the importance of firsthand experiences and and kids being able to grasp grasp, uh, math concepts, for example, by being able to manipulate things with their hands. Um, And you say that parents, teachers, and even politicians who shape school curricula can improve the effectiveness of our efforts in teaching and learning and parenting uh, if they pay attention to six areas of the academic experience with firsthand experiences being one of them. Can you talk more about... Uh, the value of firsthand experiences in learning and parenting, as well as the other five important areas? Yes, well, firsthand experience is critically important for all learning. Uh, this is the means by which we have a, an experience where we're physically involved in the process of learning, and it's typically governed by our five senses, the sense of sight, touch, hearing, smell, and so forth. But uh, we've actually been able to identify 22 senses, but there are five dominant senses that we typically speak of. When a child first learns to crawl, they sit out on an exploration of the world, and things that are visually attractive, they crawl over to those, then they'll touch them, and then if they like how they look and they feel, they also give them the taste test, but it's always governed by first-hand experiences where we get sensory information into the brain so we can make decisions about objects and what to do next. For young kids in the classroom, having an opportunity to have a have a physical experience with a concept, that's how we remember it best. What we find is that only 13% of our learners are actually auditory learners. Mm. That means they learn best by listening, which also means that 87% of our kids are not being reached very well by that same strategy. But all kids learn best by having opportunities to get physically involved with a concept and this is why when kids have a chance to act out a scene in U.S. history, they remember that far better than listening to a teacher's lecture. And we spend an inordinate amount of time preparing lectures. We'll be up until 1.30 in the morning preparing what we think is the best lecture in the world. 
but our kids remember what they do, not what they hear. Now, how can we translate that to benefit parents, having that um, firsthand experience and, and being able to have our kids do something rather than us lecture them? We do the same things as parents, as, as a teacher oh, uh, might lecture. Yeah. Unfortunately, we do, but one of the things that parents can, can do for young children in particular is to give them lots of experiences where they're physically involved with the environment. Um, I was in Alameda, California a couple of days ago, and I saw a mother pushing a toddler in a stroller, and she's on her iPhone, apparently texting or doing something else, but the kid is going past <clears throat> trees, flowers, mm -hmm. near, near a park, all the kinds of things where the mother could have interacted with the child said, here's a tree, did you, here's a flower. Did you notice on this bush there's a flower? And on that flower, here's a what? Yes, that's a butterfly. But having those types of firsthand real-world experiences, those lock into the brain of a developing child. When a parent can have those kinds of experiences, that's when a child learns best. You may notice the same thing happens if you, anyone who has a toddler or young infant to toddlerhood, when you begin to talk with them, <clears throat> the first thing they do is they look back and forth at your eyes, and if your eyes are friendly, and that's usually the dilation of the pupils tells them that you're a friendly person, but thereafter they fixate on your mouth to see how is it that you're producing those sounds. And they watch your face, they watch your muscle movement, they watch mm -hmm. the mouth, how the lips are forming to produce certain sounds. They later begin to do what we call babbling, and they're just trying to imitate the sounds that they, they saw you produce. Mm -hmm. If a child is watching TV or listening to one of the uh, very popular programs like Baby Einstein, they don't see someone forming those sounds by the use of their mouth and lips. And those kids are actually language delayed from those products. Wow. So, so firsthand experiences <clears throat> where kids are physically involved, they see you physically involved, that's how they learn best. And the same thing occurs with reading. If a parent is reading to a child, best thing to do is to sit at a 90-degree angle rather than perfectly horizontal to that child, where the child can also see you as you move your mouth to produce those words, so they can begin correlating how is it that people produce those sounds, where are the sounds correlated with the words that I'm seeing associated with the pictures. Wow. And then when kids have a chance to not just listen to you, but interact and talk about the book, that's when they actually begin to develop their language skills. It's not from listening, but having that serve and receive, the give and take of language, that's what actually produces language. But those are the kinds of first-hand experiences that truly build the brain. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let's talk about one of the other uh, important uh, elements that, that you write about, because it's related to what you just said. Uh, turn off the TV and teach time management. So I was thinking with that suggestion, turn off the TV is for the kid, but it also sounds like it's relevant for the parent as well. Turn off the iPhone. Um, turn turn off the computer and the internet to interact with your child to give them these firsthand experiences. But also, you say it's critically important for children to minimize "quote unquote" screen time. Talk more about that. Yeah, uh, screen time we now define as it used to be screen time related to TV screens, but with today's technology and the advent of, of 
iPads, iPods, cell phones, things that um, were typically an, an, a tool we use just for communicating sound like a telephone. Now the telephone also is your computer with YouTube videos, things mm-hmm. of that nature. So kids spend a lot of time on screen time, and we have a long list of screens now before it was just the TV. But the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that kids under two see absolutely no TV whatsoever, and that kids between three and eight see only minimal amounts, and that should be uh, determined by parental discretion. And Dr. Wesson, I I see babies with their own iPads. It's not even their parents anymore. They've got their own baby iPad. So you're saying the recommendation is zero screen time uh, under the age of two. Yes, even worse... um, at the uh, most recent technology fair in Las Vegas where they have uh, all the latest technology revealed each year, they have now something called the iPotty. <laughs> and it's a child's potty with a little rack onto which you now place your iPad. So that while the kids go in potty, he has the iPad to entertain him. Wow. Well, I guess that adults have their, their magazines, right? <laughs> uh, well, oh, but <laughs> magazines actually force you to create pictures in the mind. Sure. That's the benefit of words as mm-hmm. opposed to Wow. So, the, again, this is good information, not only for educators, also for parents. And, again, it's not to condemn parents. It's to educate parents so they can make better decisions that uh, have a long-term effect on their child's ability to learn and to pay attention and, and to conform to the, the rules at home and at school. And so uh, you also talk about the value of emotions in in learning and avoiding punishing children. Um, talk more about that. Yeah. Well, punishing children uh, usually is something that creates more stress. And there are ways to, if you want to change behavior, you can modify behavior in a long list of ways. Punishing just happens to be one of them. It's typically the easiest, and it's the easiest way to also release some of your own frustrations about a child's behavior. But that doesn't mean you've advanced his improvement in behavior. You've just, in more cases, satisfied your frustration by punishing it if it's done physically. But for young children, if you want to change their behavior, one of the best ways that that we've found, and it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, typically, if a child misbehaves, we'll sit him down and say, uh, Billy, why did you do what you did? And he says, I don't know. Mm-hmm. If you stand Billy up, put your hand on his shoulder, and walk with him and ask the exact same question, you'll typically get a cascade of explanations. And that's because our body-brain system is designed to do our best thinking while we're moving. Wow. By merely standing up, you have 5% more glucose to the brain by walking or movements, you add 15%, and that's a cognitive advantage whether you're in a classroom or at home. But just having a chance to move, we do our better, do much better thinking. And when children are being punished, uh, it depends on the type of punishment. If you if you ask a child to go sit in the corner and think about what you just, just did, he might go to the corner and say, as I think about what I did, Given those same circumstances, I'll do it again because I liked what I did. Mm. But if you ask him to go to the corner and think about three different things you could have done under those circumstances, 
And when he thought of those three things, he'd come back and share those with me. Now, he's initiated ways to look at those circumstances and change his own behavior. The next time we see those circumstances, he'll probably choose one of those three behaviors. Wow. So that, that could really change the way parents discipline and teachers <laughs> as well, where we're less frustrated and in the moment and actually getting better results from our children. You know, far better results because when a child actually constructs a mental image of a behavior that's more appropriate for those circumstances, as they think about multiple positive behaviors, much higher probability that they'll select one of those than the negative behavior that they're being punished for in the future. And they're coming up with that themselves, so they're taking a little more ownership. Uh, you, you talk about giving children choices, and so yeah. certainly the parent could offer the choices, but probably even, even better is for mm -hmm. the child to come up with those options, as you stated. Once a child has come up with history, a parent can also suggest some other behaviors that may be just as, just as important and appropriate. And when a child has a, now he has a little tool chest from which he can now extract those behaviors given the circumstances in the future, that's power for the child. And it's also comforting for the parent to know that the child understands that given those circumstances, here are several several appropriate behaviors that I can engage in that will be satisfying to the parent, will not create problems for me in the future, everyone will be happy. Mm -hmm. And so th this all falls under the heading of um, emotions are valuable in learning. We want to elicit emotion in a child to make things more memorable for them, but we don't want to elicit that emotion through threats of punishment and fear. And that's often what many parents do is they try to instill fear in their child as, as a way to get them to comply and, and obey. But really, that's having the opposite effect. But talk about the value of invoking, e evoking positive emotions to promote learning. Yeah. It's the positive emotions that we're after when it comes to learning. They do far more. Uh, when you think about the kinds of things that uh, we remember best in life, it's our highest highs and our lowest lows. And those are basically emotional events. And the things that we remember best are the things that have emotional importance to us. And that's why in the classroom sometimes we'll be lecturing. And the things that kids gravitate towards because they see that it's relevant to me, it has some emotional importance to me, those are the things they remember. If they have a circumstance under which they work with other children, we now have an emotional component associated with the learning itself. And that aids the learning and memory formation. And obviously that impacts our ability to recall that information and use it in the future. So emotions are can be the most important catalyst in the classroom. But as you said, there are negative emotions that take learning the opposite direction. And what we see is when people are experiencing long-term negative emotions, it's what we call stress. And I just got back from doing some work in Israel with everyone from, the, from higher education, from the College of the Ed, and we spent one full day on how the brain learns, and then the following day was just a half day on the impact of poverty, stress, and trauma on the developing brain and what implications it has in the classroom. And stress turns out to be one of the most important factors that decreases the ability for a child to learn. 
if you're under stress and you're experiencing, if you're experiencing fear, what the body-brain system does is it says, I need to protect myself. And it's not really focused now on learning. It's more focused on how is it that I protect myself, how is it that I survive. And when the brain is on survival, it's really not on learning. It's how do I get out of this situation so I can think about the concept of 5 plus 2 tonight at the campfire. But right now, I have to survive. And for kids in the classroom, if they're focused on survival and not learning, obviously, long-term learning is not going to take place in that diffuse whole purpose of education. Mm-hmm. And so the importance of school safety, uh, being able to come to school and feel safe while you're at school, uh, knowing that when you go home, your home is safe, your community is safe. Uh, these are things that perhaps teachers and parents don't consider when we're looking at children who perhaps are un, un, underperforming. Uh, we're not seeing the gains in, in progress in their achievement at school. Safety is something that we should examine. How can we help our child reduce stress, feel safe, um, have positive emotional experiences as opposed to, to stress? We have just about a, a minute uh, left, Dr. Wesson. Um, and a couple of the other items in that list of sec- six critical things to be aware of to improve learning, um, you say health and cognition go together, and we've talked a little bit about that already with exercise and diet, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more after the break. Also, vocabulary development is key and making as many connections as possible. And we'll continue talking about these critical elements for learning and um, for parents and educators. I'm talking with neuroscience expert Dr. Kenneth Wesson. And when we come back, we're going to hear from him some strategies on how we can improve our memories, not just for our children, but for ourselves. If you're like me and you walk into a room and forget what you went in there for, you'll want to pay attention to what Dr. Kenneth Wesson has to share when we return. This is Living Well with Dr. Peg. I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. You can listen online at drpegradio.com every Thursday from 1 to 2 or go to drpegradio.com for the program archives and to learn more about any of my upcoming events. Do something different for a change. Personal transformation retreat in Denver is coming up soon. We'll be right back. Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well-being of every student, teacher, and school employee. From early childhood solutions to advanced training for teachers and administrators, the 21st Century Safe School is the most complete and comprehensive approach available to schools and universities. As a parent, you have every right to demand that your child is afforded the safest environment. Take action today by calling us at 877-878-5800 and learn more about this innovative approach at SSIGuardian.com. Do you ever make changes? But after a few days, weeks, or even months, you slip back into old behaviors and patterns. If you want something different, you've got to do something different. Yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want. Why? Because change is hard, it's scary, and it comes at a cost. 
If you're ready for change, join psychologist, author, and transformation specialist, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark for a one-day Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat. In this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Dr. Peg's Do Something Different for a Change personal transformation retreat is coming to Denver on Saturday, December 30th. Go to drpegradio.com forward slash retreat to register today. All right, everyone. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us for the Living Well with Dr. Peg show. If you'd like to join in the conversation with my guest, Dr. Kenneth Wesson, ask him anything about the brain, about learning, all the things that we've been talking about, um, disciplining children, give us a call at 303-477-477. 5600. That's 303-477-5600. So thanks so much, uh, Dr. Wesson. Uh, We were talking about these six critical areas to pay attention to to improve learning. And um, the last one that I want us to go into a little more depth is um, health and cognition. We alluded to it already when I was trying to get you to to um, tell my listeners that eating pumpkin pie is good for their brain, <laughs> but only if it's organic homemade pumpkin and we leave off the, all the sugar and the crust. Uh, but uh, you say that an unhealthy brain cannot learn well, and nor can a hungry or dehydrated brain. T- say more about that. Yes. Well, one of the things you find that um, is that a 2% decrease in hydration can cause a 20% decrease in energy level which is why hydration is extremely important, which is why we also recommend that every school always make water available to children. But many schools don't because kids say, well, now I have to go to the restroom. But going to the restroom is part of being hydrated. And that's also contributing to learning in the classroom. So uh, definitely make sure kids are hydrated. But Getting back to the issue of nutrition and hunger, uh, a hungry mind is a mind that's very difficult to focus on anything other than what am I going to get to eat and when. And this is why almost every school district in the country has a program for poor children to make sure that they have meals and sometimes just breakfast and lunch. I believe the city of New York has now implemented a program for all kids to receive lunch to make certain that no kid is hungry. Because the moment you become hungry, your body-brain system says, it's time now for me to seek out food. And that's not just a health issue, that's a survival issue. And if you're hungry, focused on focusing on learning, that becomes increasingly difficult, the hungrier you get. So, so making sure we send our children to school well-fed, if we can mm-hmm. afford to do that, would be important for them, and certainly um, schools are providing uh, lunches uh, so because it really is a, an educational issue. Uh, we, it's hard to focus on anything, as you said, when you're hungry. Let's talk about memory, how, how we can remember things. I, I'm, I'm getting older here, Dr. Wesson, and I don't think I'm alone uh, when I walk into a room and forget what I went in there for. And so I, what I try to do is walk out of the room and see if, if, if it'll come back to me why I went in there to begin with. Uh, but then I get distracted. I walk out of the room and I start doing something else and never go back in to get what I, what I needed to get. So give us some, um, 
some examples of what you call memory situations or, or memory problems that many of us experience in, in addition to the one I shared. And then let's diagnose those those situations and um, offer some suggestions and, and um, tips for listeners to improve their memory as well as to help their children uh, develop some good memory practices and habits. Yeah, well, well first, <clears throat> we make the misattribution when we say things like, I'm getting older, age. <laughs> uh-huh. Age doesn't really impact learning very much until you get, say, in your mid-80s when there's a high probability of uh, experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia. But prior to that, our brains are, are wired to learn. Okay. The brain rewards, it rewards itself when we learn. It rewards itself when we recall information. Think about times when you play a board game and uh, your partner poses a question and you come up with the answer. Not only is your partner excited, <laughs> you're excited because your brain rewards itself for those types of positive behaviors and making connections. So I can't use that excuse anymore. Uh, no, you, you also hear people say things like, uh, I'm having a senior moment, and I would encourage all of, you, all of your listeners to strike that from your vocabulary. Okay. Now, when a child forgets his jacket at school or forgets his homework at home, no one says he's having an elementary moment. <laughs> now, part of a complex living environment requires that we remember quite a few things. And given the multitude of things that we must remember, some things indeed are going to fall through the crack. At which point we sometimes make a misattribution. We say, oh, I'm having a senior moment. It has nothing to do with age. It has to do with the complexity of normal living. A child who has several things to bring home from school will sometimes forget one or two of them, and that's, that's normal. If he forgets his jacket every day, that's a problem. But most of the types of things we forget are, are truly occasional. And sometimes it has to do with being absent-minded. Sometimes it's a, we have a failure to retrieve information that we know, we know, but we simply can't retrieve it. And we have that tip of the tongue experience. Or we sometimes mistake where we learned information and we have difficulty retrieving that information. Sometimes new information interferes with information we knew before, and we see this especially in court cases, and I've served as an expert witness in several court cases on memory issues, and that's because sometimes if I witness an accident and I remember all of the people, the types of cars, and one car was red and it was a Ford, later in court they say, and when the red Chevy hit my hit his car, you say, yes, yes. Yes, well, when it hits, you say, no, it wasn't a Chevy, it was a Ford. We make misattribution because we have so many other events taking place between the time we witness an event and the time we may be asked about the, the event. We make, mis- we make connections and associations that may not have occurred at the first event. And sometimes we mix those up and we retell the story incorrectly. The same thing happens when you have family members who say, oh, Remember back when you did X, and they say, and here's what happened. You say, no, when that happened, here's what I did. Both of you are given an honest recollection of what you remember, but your memories are indeed different because of the kinds of things that may have interfered over the process of time and even how you interpreted that event in the first place. So memory is about a reconstruction of what you recall. It's not an accurate 
videotape of what actually occurred. And it's very important for parents to remember that because oftentimes when kids recall events based on their perception, they're not lying. That was actually how they remember the event itself. Now, that's a, that's a good uh, caution is to, to understand developmentally what's happening in, happening in a child's memory processes because we will tell the kid, oh, you're lying uh, because that's not how it happened. But that's how they've constructed that memory. I appreciate what you're saying. It's, we, we don't really have uh, a videographic memory, uh, even though nope. some people may say they have photographic memory. Um, really, what's happening is reconstructing based on all kinds of things, past experiences, maybe even your um, emotional state you talked about, if we're, if we're hungry or if we're tired, um, um, stressed out, that's going to affect learning. And so I presume that affects our ability to recall and construct that memory to begin with. Sure. Well, well events are constructed based on our perception of the components. And when we recall that event, we, we reconfigure, we collect those components. And what I recollect is the components of the event may be different than what you recollect to represent that event. And and it's, it's true, we don't have photographic memories, we have reconstructive memories, and we all reconstruct it based on what we believe happened. And sometimes it's not what we remember happening, it truly is what we believe happened. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's talk about some of these memory types of scenarios. A common one that happens to me is I'm uh, driving in my car. I'm going to the grocery store or to the mall or wherever, and um, I park my car, and I jump out of the car and go on into the store, and I shop for an hour or two, however long I'm there. And when I come back out, I realize, uh-oh, I don't know where I parked. I don't remember where I parked because <laughs> I jumped out of the car. I was listening to KLZ 560 and getting into the, the talk uh, radio d- discussion and conversation and got out of my car and went into the store. Is that a memory problem or is that a paying attention to begin with problem? Um, that's an attention problem. And I think every parent has had that experience and sometimes teachers have the same experience. Think about times when you have a project that you, that's due in school the next day and your child tells you at 8.30 p.m. Now you have to race to the hobby store to pick up several items. You race over to the shopping mall. You look around. You finally find a parking spot. You park your car as quickly as you can, hop out of your car, race into the mall, find the hobby store, and at 8.59, you have your purchases on the counter and you say, good, I made it. Mm-hmm. Now they bag your goods, you leave the mall, and the first thing you ask yourself is, yes, where did I park? If you look at the priorities that you had, where to park was probably dead last on your personal list. Of your priorities was getting there in time, getting the right materials, making sure that you had all the materials so your child can complete his project, making sure you got there safely. Parking, finding a parking spot was so low on your list of important events that you don't remember where you parked. None of us would remember where we parked. That's why we now have the little panic buttons on our car fob <laughs> that we can push to find our car. And I do the same thing because I travel so frequently. I'll frequently get a, pick up a car after I, my plane lands. I'll pick up the car at the rental agency. 
drive my car to the hotel, and in the morning, I don't remember what car I rented the night before. And what car I, re- I rented the night before is not important. That I've made it there safely, that I'm prepared for my speech the next day, that is important. And I can always find the car by pressing a couple of buttons. Well, if if the, if the battery on your your thing still works, my my battery make, <laughs> my battery's running out. I got to be right on top of my car for yeah. it to recognize it. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, forgetting what you walk into a room for. We've all had that experience. What happens on the way from point A to point B is that we encounter a lot of other distractions things that we should do, things that we should be paying attention to, things that need to be taken care of just as important as the trip we're now taking. That's why when we get to the destination, we're in in the second room where the item we're seeking is located, but we've been distracted by so many other things in the process of getting there that we've now forgotten what that other item was. Mm -hmm. Unless it's something critical, like you're going from your bedroom to a restroom because your nose is bleeding. By the time you get to the restroom, if your nose is still bleeding, that becomes your cue to help spark that memory. So, so but if, you have, if you have no cues by the time you get to the next room, you are looking around hoping that the item you're seeking <laughs> will jump out and announce where it is. Right, right. And, and um, scrambling to try to recreate what you were doing and thinking before you forgot is part of the challenge. So let's spend the last uh, well, couple... Cup... Sorry, Dr. Comedian, you know, one comedian said that we not only have neurons in our brain, we have neurons in our bottom because when we go back to the original room and sit down, <laughs> those neurons are stimulated and we jump back up and we know what we're after and we make that trip a second time. Exactly. Well, and and some of our savvy listeners may already be coming up with some ideas and strategies for improving memory as they're hearing and understanding more about how our brains work and learning works and and memory. Memories are reconstructed and and retrieved. And so uh, what I'd like to do with our last few minutes is for you to share some reliable memory techniques and memory aids that we can all use. Uh, My daughter is um, back in school after about a year and a half. She graduated about a year and a half ago and and was working, and now she's back in school as a graduate student. And it's it's a bit of an adjustment for her to uh, do all of the reading that's been assigned, you know, a couple hundred pages a week. And so um, what kinds of tips can you give my daughter? We have about two minutes left, and you'll, you'll hear the music when we're running out of time. Uh, just for any of us, whether we're students, whether our job requires us to remember things, um, parents, whatever, what are some good tips? No, one of the most important is um, what we call uh, just taking breaks, and it's, it's just called intermittent opportunities for reflection. Being able to take a break, as we say, maximum every 22 minutes, take a break. About or write down what you've learned, and then studying before you go to bed. Memories are consolidated while we sleep at night. Mm. And getting plenty of rest is important because, as people recognize, when you're tired, it's very difficult for us to remember. And and as we said before, nutrition is important. If your if your mind is focused on where am I going to get the next meal or next bit of nutrition just to stay alive, uh, we're going to remain unfocused 
and we'll have difficulty remembering information that was processed when we were not focused on remembering that information initially. So some of the real basics of getting rest, taking breaks, making sure you're hydrated, you're not hungry, those are some important reminders. Yeah, especially taking breaks and having opportunities to walk and talk about what you've just mm-hmm. learned. One of the best ways for that information to consolidate because when you talk about what you've learned, that's when you can find out what you don't know and you can fill in the blanks once you get back to the desk. Great, great. What, what would be some other uh, strategies in terms of memory tips or what we call mnemonics? we got about a minute left. Yeah, yeah. mnemonics is one of, one of my favorites, and I always use uh, what's called Farm B. When we have to remember the animal kingdom, it's fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and birds. And when you put those in that order, it's Farm B. And things that are difficult to remember because they're random, if you use mnemonics and place them in order that actually suggest another word, they're much easier to remember. And random lists, we say you can remember seven random items and no more. If you put those seven items in order, you'll remember them quicker. And if you put 12 items in order using mnemonics, you can remember far more than the limited seven items. Outstanding. Well, Dr. Wesson, that's all we have time for today, but we sure have covered a lot of ground. I so appreciate you being my guest today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been wonderful. And listeners, you can tune in every Thursday to Living Well with Dr. Pegg. Don't forget about my personal transformation retreat and the Pumpkin Pie 5K. Go to drpegradio.com. My guest has been Dr. Kenneth Wesson, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well.